Good evening. When I want to relax and just chill out, I like to read whodunits. The trouble is you sort of run out of them, don't you? When you read all the Agatha Christie and the Dorothy Sayer and all the rest of it, what do you read? And I've come across recently an author called R. Austin Freeman, who I can fairly confidently say probably nobody's ever heard of. He wrote in the 1920s, he was one of the pioneers of detective fiction, and his hero, Dr. Thorndike, Thorndike, he describes as a medical jurist practitioner, which in today's language would be a forensic scientist. And he's probably the first guy who ever wrote about that kind of detection. And uh, like all books from the period, they're a bit wordy and hard to get into, but some fascinating stories. And this guy has a philosophy. It's that he will gather in all the facts, and then he will put them down and try and see the pattern that points to who done it. Luke is a doctor. He's an historian. He's an investigator. He tells us that at the beginning of his gospel, that he's investigating all the facts. His job, to collect the facts, to see the pattern, which shows not who done it, but who is it? Who is Jesus? Well, what facts did Luke have? Uh, he had written sources, certainly Mark's gospel, probably Matthew's gospel, and others that we don't now have. And there may have been far more than we think. We're a bit patronizing about the past, and we think everybody sort of post about 20 years ago was totally ignorant. Um, but even in the first century, there were quite a lot of people who could read and write. Scribes were the official readers and writers, but there were many traders, business people, teachers, tax collectors, priests, Pharisees, as well as many of the upper classes who could read and write. And uh, there's a fascinating book by Alan Millard, who was a professor of, I have to read this to get it right, uh, Hebrew and Ancient Semitic Languages at the University of Liverpool. And he's called Reading and Writing in the Time of Jesus. And after he's gone through all the sort of academic stuff, looking at all the different sources we have about how much people read and write in those days, he creates an imaginary scenario. Jesus comes and preaches in Capernaum. And one of the local religious teachers makes notes on a wax tablet. Now, that's not unusual. In the first century, orators, public speakers, were the pop stars of the day. And the famous ones made a lot of money and got a lot of prestige out of doing the tour, as pop stars do now. And people who could read and write would carry a wax tablet clipped to their belt. they carry a stylus. they take notes of what these people said. So he envisages that happening at Capernaum. This new religious teacher, Jesus, has come. The guy starts writing notes. Later, he writes it up and sends it as a letter to the high priests in Jerusalem because they like to keep a check on religious teachers. Another listener goes home, recognises that he's been at some sort of historic occasion and writes in a scroll a record of what he's heard so that he can pass it down in his family to say, I was there when Jesus came to my village. The centurion whose servant Jesus heals, writes a letter to his brother, another centurion serving overseas, describing the events that have happened. Now, it's all imagination, of course it is, but it's exactly the sort of thing that is entirely probable and could have happened in those days. 
and Millard sums it all up by saying there were probably lots and lots of written documents, informal ones, that people then collected as individuals in their family or the church corporately collected. So Luke had a lot of written sources for his investigation. But of course, he also had an advantage that not every historian has got. Imagine you're writing a history of the prime ministers of Britain. Well, if you're writing about Gladstone and Disraeli, you've only got written sources. If you're writing about Harold Wilson or Margaret Thatcher, you haven't only got written sources, you can talk to people who were around at the time. And that was Luke's position. He could investigate just like the detective does in a whodunit by going and speaking to the people who were there and talking to people like Peter and John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a whole host of people whose names we don't know. So what we've got here is a conscientious, reliable historian with a wealth of good evidence. But what does that pattern, that investigation, tell us about Jesus? Let's read from Luke's Gospel. We're going to read from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18 and into verse 23. Luke 7 18 to 23, page 1029 in the Pew Bibles. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, it's obviously why Luke has chosen this particular incident out of all the evidence he's collected to put into his gospel to try and investigate this question, who is Jesus? Because John and John's disciples are asking the very question that Luke is asking. John had burst on the scene like an Old Testament prophet, calling people to repent and be baptised. He pointed out Jesus as the one that God had sent, the one that God had promised through the Old Testament. He's now in prison for daring, as the prophets did in the ages, to criticise the king for his illegal marriage. These things that John's disciples had told him in prison, what were they? Well, things like the immediate stuff in Luke's Gospel just before this passage, the healing of the centurion's servant, the raising of the widow's son. So why does John send his disciples to Jesus with this question? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Or is somebody else coming afterwards? It's fascinating reading the commentaries on it. They wriggle like anything to come up with convincing explanations that says John didn't have doubts. I think John did have doubts. I think that's the most obvious explanation of this question. You see, Jesus isn't working out quite the way John expected. He's not working out quite the way everybody expected, because what people expected of a Messiah was somebody who'd raise a revolution and drive the Romans out. They were looking for judgment. John talks about Jesus coming in judgment, and he's not seen that happen. And there, in prison, 
Was I right? Did I get it right? Is it Jesus? Is there somebody else to come? All these doubts come in on him. Even the greatest followers of God have doubts and wonder why God is or isn't doing what we expect him to. You don't have to be a Christian for very long to get into that situation. You're confident that God's going to work in a certain way, in a certain situation or in somebody's life, or this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and it doesn't. You think, what's happened? Has God abandoned me? Have I misunderstood what God is saying? Sometimes it's the timing, and getting the timing of what God is doing is so difficult. We sang earlier, you've never let me down. That's absolutely true. But it doesn't always feel like that. It sometimes feels very much that God has let us down. And the things we wanted God to do, he hasn't done. He's done things that we didn't want him to do or allowed things to happen that we didn't want. And that is the common experience of Christians. It's not sin. It's part of the imperfect life that we go through. And there's no magic answer to it, but there's a clue here in what John does. And that is when you're in that situation, you're thinking, God, what on earth are you playing at? Try and look at Jesus. Pray that, Lord, help me to see Jesus in this situation that I don't understand, that is causing me pain, that is making me doubt you. Let me see Jesus. Jesus gives an answer to John's disciples. He points them, strangely enough, to the miracles. He says, look, all these things are happening. He's saying a little bit more than maybe we realise because he's actually, John would have recognised that Jesus is pointing back to the Old Testament. One of the great prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, was one of the ones who spoke most of the Messiah, the Christ that was to come. And this is some of what he says about the Messiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongue shout with joy. Or perhaps even more well known, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Isaiah goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus takes these words, he uses them for his manifesto when he's preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. He leaves out that last bit about vengeance. And that's part of John's problem. It's the timing of God. It looks when you read the prophets as though bang, 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 miracle, miracle, good things, vengeance, judgment. But we know there is a gap. And Jesus' answer to John is, yes, I am the Messiah. But today is the day of grace. It's the day of mercy. Judgment will come. Judgment will come. Jesus will come again, and it will be a day of judgment. But the judgment was not then. And it was not in the form that the people expected, that John probably expected, of driving out the Romans. Jesus says, look at these miracles. They will show you that I am from God. But this is the day of grace, the day of mercy. But miracles as evidence? Our cynical generation says, oh, how can you believe the evidence of miracles? People will believe any old rubbish. Miracles don't happen. 
should note, of course, that that's as much a statement of faith as miracles do happen. It's one of those things you can't prove either way. You pay your money and take your choice. I want us just for a few minutes to take a look at one particular miracle to see in what way these things point to Jesus as Messiah. I'm not going to take one of Luke's miracles. I'm going to take a miracle in John's Gospel because it just fits this investigation theme very well. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's very long, but if you want to have your Bible open, it's John chapter 9. I don't know quite what page that is in the Pew Bible. But I'll tell you the story as we go through. You may want to follow it to make sure that I'm uh, sticking to the facts. But you see, here's a miracle. Jesus and his disciples see a man who was born blind and he's begging. The disciples initiate a theological discussion. Jesus cuts right through it by healing the man. He does it in a curious way. He spits into some clay. He puts the clay on the guy's eyes and he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. That's an interesting thing for those of you that are interested in historic historical accuracy because it's not relevant to anything else that happens in the story and one of the things that historians look for not just in the bible but in historical documents generally is those details that are not relevant to anything why are they there well because that's what happened so the guy wrote it down it's a big test of reliability that you get seemingly superfluous detail in there But people aren't gullible. The people of Jesus' day knew that that sort of thing doesn't happen. So this guy comes back from the pool, and some of the people who, you know, they don't pay much attention. Could you uh, describe the last person you saw sitting begging in the subway in the city centre? No, you don't really look at them. People then didn't look at him. They say, oh, this guy that's come back, perhaps it's not him, it's somebody else. So the Pharisees, who are Jesus' enemies, who are absolutely determined to discredit him, they start the investigation. They become the detectives. They call in the man. They call in the man's parents. They ask the questions. Is this your son? Was he born blind? What has happened to him? They get evasive answers because the Pharisees had a great deal of power. They could get people thrown out of the synagogue. That doesn't sound very significant to us. But what it means is people could be totally ostracized from society at the word of the Pharisees. Uh, Nobody wanted to be in that position. So the parents and, and the man are a bit evasive. But what they say, and what is absolutely clear is, yes, I was blind, Jesus healed me, now I can see. And it's a typical of the miracles of Jesus. The majority of them were incredibly public. And they just happened. There was no time for preparation. There was no rigging it up in advance. There was no uh, faking it. Jesus meets somebody. He heals them. People see it. The evidence is there. And at the time Luke's writing, some of those people who'd been healed were still alive and could give first-hand evidence. They were widely witnessed. And here's the crunch thing. Even his enemies, who were desperate to discredit him, could not disprove them. So miracles, it's a good answer that Jesus gives to John. Look at the miracles. Could anyone who was not sent by God do that? That's what the man asked the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, this Jesus is a sinner. And he says, well, nobody else is doing stuff like this. How can this happen if this man is not from God? 
I guess we then ask the question, do miracles still happen today? Does Jesus still work miracles? Sadly, many so-called healers are, and I don't want to pull punches here, are frauds and con men. There are those who set up meetings and invite people to come forward for healing, and they aren't healed. And they're told they are healed. And in some cases, it's quite tragic in that people throw away medicines and things when they shouldn't. Generally speaking, the more hype and emotion there is, and the longer the appeal for the offering, the more likely it is to be a fraud. But yes, I have spoken to people who I trust, and I know as sensible people, who have been miraculously healed. Sometimes, because God is a God of grace and will work in any situation, sometimes even through the activities of people who really are uh, in it as a con. But God has healed people. I'm trying to think back. I think only once have I seen a direct miracle of healing personally. With a, a friend and colleague of mine, we were invited to help a church with a mission week they were putting on. And we got a meeting set up with the uh, elders and deacons and the minister of that church. And uh, a little way before it, my friend did his back in. And uh, if you've ever had these kind of back problems, you know what it's like. He was in terrible pain and he was sort of bent over and couldn't move easily. But he decided he'd go to the meeting anyway with me. So he couldn't drive. So we carefully maneuvered him into my car. We drove to the church. We carefully maneuvered him out and helped him into the church. And we sat at this meeting and we talked about all the practical things that were going to happen in the mission week. And then one of the elders at the church said, this is just ridiculous. We're talking about a mission in which the power of Jesus by his Holy Spirit is going to reach out to this community. And we've got our friend John here who's crippled up. We need to pray for him. And so we all gathered round him. We laid hands on him. We prayed for God to heal him. And he instantly stood up and was pain-free and could walk. Doubtless somebody could come up with a practical explanation for that. Why not? God is the God of science. God created the world. Of course God can use practical means. But I couldn't see anything. It just happened. Jesus worked a miracle in answer to prayer. Yes, miracles do happen today. Jesus does still do miracles. They are not perhaps so dramatic or so frequent as we see in the pages of the gospel. But did you notice at the end of this description of what's happening about the blind seeing and the lame walking and all the rest of it, Jesus says, and good news is preached to the poor. And that's still happening today with many miracles of totally changed lives. It goes on and on and on. There are literally millions down the years who have had their lives totally changed by the miracle of coming to faith in Jesus. One of the stories I like best concerns um, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And working in the East End of London, he would preach outside the pubs and encouraged people to commit their lives to Jesus. And if they did that, they had to give up drinking completely. Because this was a situation where men, as soon as they got their wages, would go and get blind drunk. They'd spend all or most of their money. When they got home, um, there was no money for food and clothes for their family. If their wife dared to object, well, they'd wallop her. That was the kind of culture he was working in. And one of his techniques 
was when a person came to faith, within a very short time, he'd have them standing up at the meeting in front of all their mates outside the pub and tell what Jesus had done in their lives. And the story's told, one of these guys standing up telling his story, and a heckler shouts, Hey, mate, do you believe in miracles? Did Jesus really turn water into wine? And the man says, I don't know whether Jesus turned water into wine, but I'll tell you this, in my house, he's turned beer into food and clothes for my family. And those kind of miracles go on again and again and again as people's lives are totally and dramatically changed, or sometimes slowly changed over a period of time. Not all of us have hugely dramatic conversions and changes. I was 19 when Jesus turned my life around. Not long after that, a few years later, he led me into Christian work with schools and young people. He has miraculously provided financially and practically for 40 years. And we haven't got time tonight. I could go into lots of stories of how that has happened. Others could tell similar stories. Every Christian has got a story of what Jesus has done in their lives. Miracles still happening. Now, there's no such thing as irrefutable evidence. We like to think that we're all objective and we see the facts and we follow them, but actually human beings aren't like that. You can have a, uh, a, something that seems solid historical fact or a scientific fact or whatever, and there'll be somebody who says, no, that isn't true or that isn't right or whatever. You can't prove things. But Luke the investigator, and the rest of the Bible provides reliable historical evidence. It's not a load of fiction written hundreds of years later. This is based on contemporary accounts written and oral. This is stuff you can trust. If you don't trust the Gospels, by the way, you might as well write off the whole of history because the life of Jesus is better evidence than many, many parts of history that we take for granted. And this evidence shows, when you put the pattern together, that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, who came to earth, who died on the cross for our sins, and who rose again from the dead, the greatest of all the miracles. Again, we don't have time to go into it, but there are plenty of books you can read. Look at the evidence for the resurrection. It's not a piece of fiction. There are a number of people who've gone out to disprove the resurrection and ended up believing it because the evidence is so overwhelming. But like the investigator in the whodunit stories, there comes a point where you have to put it to the test. You have to put it together and say, it was the butler. And there comes a point where you look at the evidence for Jesus and then you have to take a step of faith. Because the evidence only takes you so far. I've told this story before, but it's worth telling again. Years ago, one of the films we used to show was a series of Vox Pops. And uh, the camera crew were out on the streets asking people, who is Jesus? And you got all the usual answers to that period. Oh, he's a spaceman. Oh, he's a religious teacher. Oh, he's a something or other. He's just a good bloke. He never existed. Um, and then suddenly, they interview this young woman, and she says, he's the son of God who died on the cross to forgive our sins. 
and the interviewer says, oh, are you a Christian? And she says, no. If I, had to be, if I were to be a Christian, I would have to give control of my life to Jesus, and I don't want to do that. And that's the crunch question. You can look at the evidence, but then you've got to decide, what am I going to do about it? On the basis of the evidence, you have to decide whether you're going to take a step of faith. My prayer when I came to faith was very simple. God, if you are real, take over my life. I don't have the slightest idea what that would involve. And looking back, wow, practically nothing in my life has been what I intended to do. God answered that prayer in all sorts of ways. And that's what I want to leave you with tonight. Luke investigates the facts. He tells this particular story for John, the man with doubts, and says, here's one set of evidence. Look at the miracles. Look at the miracles that were happening then. We can take it further and say, look at the miracles that, are happening, that have happened since, particularly the miracles in so many people's lives. But then we have to say, what will I do with it? Will you tonight, if you never have, make that your prayer? God, if you're real, take over my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evidence about Jesus. Help us to read it and understand it. Let your Holy Spirit guide us. Help us to be willing to ask questions and to challenge it. Father, thank you that your word stands up to challenges and questions. Help those of us, Father, who have doubts about what you're doing and why. Help us to see Jesus in those situations we face. But for those who as yet have not taken that step of faith based on the evidence, of seeing that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the one sent by God to bring us forgiveness and salvation. We haven't taken that step. Lord, enable us to take it tonight. Commit ourselves to you and let that miracle be worked in our lives, that we no longer have to rely on what we've read or heard, but we've experienced it for ourselves. Father, do your work amongst us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.